Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. In this episode, Murphy gets concrete with Chad Syverson, Chicago booth economist whose former life as an engineer helps him understand the drivers of productivity, how it is measured, and what can be gleaned from past growth trends in predicting what might come. Chad, welcome. Thanks, Glad Kevin. to have you here today. Thank you. And, uh, well, before we dive into the substance, I know there's a lot we want to talk about uh, Let's give our audience a little bit of an idea of the flavor of economist that you are. Um, you're clearly an empirical economist. Uh, traditionally, I would say a micro-empirical economist. Yeah. Although many of the issues we'll talk about, many of the things you've worked at are really important from a macro or more aggregate standpoint, I would say. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, so how would you characterize yourself in terms of your interest, areas, fields, topics? What gets you up in the morning and makes you want to continue to do economics? A <laughs> well, paycheck. We'll yeah, no, that. no, that's not it. I, you know, don't tell the dean, but I'd do it as a hobby if they weren't paying me, right? It's one of those things. I, so how do I describe my own work? I guess I'm an empirical economist, works a lot in industrial organizations, so you know what companies do, basically. I have uh, maybe half of that work is on productivity specifically and efficiency. And that's the part really that's got a lot of overlaps into macro um, and other areas like trade and, and stuff too. And then the other half is kind of a grab bag of traditional industrial organization topics like you know, consumer search behavior, uh, principal agent problems, um, and then actually a, a sort of a concentration within that in kind of like boundaries of the firm stuff, vertical integration and supply chain issues. So those are the sets of things that I work on. I think my interest comes from often the supply side, thinking about companies, why they do things the way they do it, what makes one different from another. Um, and you know, if you want to go deeper into the meta of why I'm interested in this stuff, I think part of it is I have an engineering background and a little bit of experience in industry as an engineer and just seeing how kind of the rubber hit the road there made me get interested in why companies do things the way they do them. And so that sort of sparks a lot of where, where the interest comes from. Now, when knowing some of your work myself and having been a colleague of yours for a long time, and both in the econ department and now over in Booth, I sort of see you as dealing with firms, but not necessarily just with individual firms, but with industries and, and, and how firms interact and how firms compete with one another in the marketplace. I think that's so it's, it, you know, it's not just about, hey, this is how a CEO runs his company. And it's, it's more like, how does an industry work? No, that's very true. That's very true. A lot of it is like, here's a system of firms acting together. How does 
each one react to the system and then how does each one's behavior add up to the system that you see. So I think that, yeah, that's very fair. A lot of times it's, it's not so much a case study of company why. It's here's a set of companies working in the market together. You know, how do they interact? What makes one different from the other? And how do those differences show up when you add it all up to, to look at the market as a whole? Now, that, that's kind of true of economists in general. I mean, economists study consumers, economists study firms, but typically our focus is broader. We're interested in markets. We're interested in how does the airline industry work or how does the oil supply, oil industry work or many other industries. And ultimately up to macro, and we'll talk about macro and kind of more the economy as a whole. But it seems to me, and I think this is what, you know, some of the lessons that come out of your work, you, understanding what's going on at the firm level is really important for understanding what happens at those higher levels of aggregation. So even if we were only interested in those things, thinking about firm and firm behavior seems to be incredibly important. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, sort of one of the themes of stuff I've been doing and in the areas I work in are, is there's just an enormous amount of differentiation when you look inside of a market. And it, it's not kind of trivial the differentiation in the sense that you don't need to understand it to understand how the market as a whole works. You really need to grasp the differences and how sort of the market reacts to those differences uh, over time, especially, and in, in sort of that shapes the evolution of the entire market. I think it is the, the old micro to macro thing that's you, the, the distribution matters for the, for the aggregates. Yes, and that's true whether we're aggregating just up to the industry level, so we're trying to understand a particular industry, or, or we're aggregating it further to macro. Completely, yep. Okay, so we'll talk about that. Now, one of the things you've done over your career is study particular industries. So, for example, I know you did a lot in cement or concrete. concrete yeah. You know, I think you've worked on both cement I and concrete. Mostly right? concrete, but some cement. Right, and people don't always yes, understand no the difference between two. That's right. The thing on the sidewalk is concrete. That's it has right. cement in it, That's but right. it's concrete. Right. But we won't get into okay, that. Okay, I was going to say I was going to give my pitch. But oh, you, you give your know. pitch. Go ahead. All right. Show so, me you know something about the real world. <laughs> cement is an ingredient in concrete. You make concrete by mixing cement with sand, gravel, water, and some small amounts of other chemicals called admixtures. So the way I explain it is cement is the concrete the way flour is to bread. And you wouldn't call bread flour, so don't call concrete cement. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that anyone ever learned that. So when I that, fall and the, crack my head, I cracked it on the concrete. You cracked it. That's the, the concrete's problem, not the <laughs> cement's problem. The cement made it hard in some sense, but it's concrete. I see. I see. And uh, I, I, I say anyway. But when you studied cement, and when you studied concrete more generally, was it because you were interested in concrete? Per se, or do you think it's a less a place to look to learn broad? No, it's the second. It's a it's a laboratory. I mean, the thing about concrete is, take the U.S. for example. There are, and it depends a little bit on how you define it, but maybe 350 different concrete markets in the U.S. And the reason why is this stuff is basically not very transportable. One, it's not very valuable relative to its weight. And two, it's perishable. As soon as you add the water to it, you've got about 90 minutes to put it somewhere. 
Okay, so what that means is the markets are really local, okay? And on top of that... So I can't, I want to build a building in Chicago, I can't buy my concrete in Los Angeles. Exactly, exactly. And so what that also means is, you know, there's basically one sector that drives concrete demand, and that's construction. And for a lot of reasons, there's just a lot of variation in construction activity across space. And so what you've got is each one of these sort of petri dishes in some sense is a different market and each one is getting moved around differentially by the by demand and sometimes they have differential supply stimuli or so what you're saying is what you call the demand side is in some areas constructions booming simultaneously you might have construction really lagging in another part of the country yeah, exactly and that those differences can be temporary they can be permanent that's right, and you, you can use the variation that exists across those markets to ask questions about economics, which are, you know, if, if such and such happens in, in uh, this market, how does the outcome look different, whether it's prices, quantities, entry and exit of producers, you know, the nature of interaction between the competitors. Each one is, in some sense, a separate experiment, and you get to be running these 350 experiments simultaneously. And so you can make these comparisons. The other... So let me, let me make, 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 try to follow up on that. Because in economics, if we're interested in markets, in general, we don't have a laboratory. We, we can't just create a market and study it. And even when we do, sometimes people do, we often criticize them because those are phony markets. They're not real markets. We tend to rely on markets that are out there. And if I had a world market that, in other words, what we mean is it was easy to transport high value goods. I got diamonds and they can be sold everywhere and I can buy, I can mine them in South Africa and sell them in New York and mine them in Russia and sell them in New York and I can, they can move around the world. Yep. I get one Petri dish at a point in time. Exactly. It's not a perfect flow of goods, but enough that it's hard to think about discrete markets. You're saying for concrete, because of the characteristics, one, even with just within the U.S., I'm going to get 350 different markets every year yep. that I can look at. Yep. Number two, the conditions in those markets differ substantially on both the demand side, that is the people buying the concrete, and on the supply side, the characteristics of the firm supplying the concrete. So from a scientific experimentation point of view, the concrete marketplace is a great place to look, even if you weren't interested in concrete. If That's you could right. care less about concrete per se, I want to understand how markets work more broadly. Yes, exactly. That's right. It's a just, it, it, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, what's the bacteria that all the scientists use? They have this strain of E. coli or whatever. Yeah. Or it's the fruit fly sort of yeah. thing. Right, it's got all these nice characteristics. Maybe we don't care about fruit flies per se so much, but man, they're great for studying gen genetics because of all these reasons. They reproduce very quickly they, and exactly, all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. They're cheap to feed. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> they're small. You can take, you can have a bunch of them in small in a lab, whatever. This concrete's kind of the the analog in economics. It's got all these features that are really nice for studying studying markets like that. I mean, other things too, like the, the output, the physical output is, is homogeneous. I mean, there's 
like a bucket of concrete is a bucket of concrete. It doesn't matter who makes it. And so at least on that dimension, it's much more comparable than the products of other industries. You know, is a, a car made by company A the same as a car made by company B? Well, we can think of a lot of reasons those aren't the same, whereas concrete... There's different specs of concrete, but... But within a given spec, for a given PSI or whatever, they're the same. They're the yeah. same. And moreover, different companies basically make the same mix of specs. So when you sort of add up their output, they're making the same average thing uh, over the course of a, a period of time. Right. And you see that in the market, right, where you see buyers switching back and forth between different suppliers, for example, in ways that they might not. Or if they have a huge job buying from multiple concrete suppliers right. and and using, you know, concrete from ways that they wouldn't typically maybe mix and match outputs from other people. So that's right. Although that's, there are other ways that concrete is differentiated besides the physical products, and that affects substitution too. But you're right, on the physical thing, which is important because that's one of the things we usually measure in the data is how many cubic yards you made. And, and the fact that that's comparable here and there is, is a useful thing. Otherwise, it gets difficult to make these. Yeah. Comparisons. Okay, so we, we got so we got you studied you, you studied the concrete marketplace. What did you learn by studying the concrete marketplace? What would you say were the key takeaways that you can then apply more broadly? So I think I learned a lot about how the market allocates production across producers with heterogeneous producers. So I got, what you mean is I, I have a bunch of different firms, some of which may be more efficient than other firms. So what did you learn about that? Yeah, so you, one is there's just a huge amount of difference across companies in how efficient they are, even within narrowly defined industries like concrete, even within a given geographic market. You know, you might have a, you know, in the U.S., for example, it's, it's typical to see a concrete producer who can get twice as much output, twice as many cubic yards of concrete out of the same inputs as another concrete producer operating in the same, in the same year. And within market, it's not that. So they use twice as much, when you say inputs, what do you mean? They use, they so, use twice as much gravel? Uh, they get twice, I mean, they get twice as much concrete for the same Good. amount of gravel? Here's how we measure inputs, and this is just the way the data is. So it's number of employees or employee hours. It's an amount of capital measured by dollar value of capital stock. And then it's input expenditures. So it's not exactly that some producer somehow gets twice as many cubic yards out of the same amount of gravel. But somehow, given the amount of money they spend, on gravel and all that other stuff, they get twice as many. Where do they save most of their money? Labor, capital, materials? That's a good question. It's, that's a, actually, I don't know the answer to that one. That's a good question. I mean, I couldn't tell you which factor e efficiency. I guess there's huge, the differences in total factor productivity are smaller than the differences in labor productivity. So maybe that points to some are able to get a lot more out of their workers than others, but I couldn't tell you the same figures for capital or materials productivity, so I can't give you the answer. Now, some of the inputs they use are purchased very broadly. Like cement, the cement part is, most of these guys don't have their own cement mine where they're right. mining cement. Maybe some of them do, but I would doubt 
So they might own a cement mine, but you some are owned by companies that are integrated. But they're still not mining at a plant level the way you definitely do. not. Now they have the workers at the plant level. They have capital or equipment at the plant level, and they also have a source for the gravel and things like that. So. To what extent are those kind of natural differences important in the concrete business? That is, I have a different source of rocks than you do. My rocks are, require less work than your rocks. Yeah. My sense is it's not that big. I think a lot of it is sort of how the inputs are put together. It's kind of the management of the the concert that's going on in the operations less than the sort of what I guess you would call a natural advantage because you got the sand and gravel pit in your backyard where the other one's got to ship it in or something or like that. Is, yeah I mean so for example good analog would be in agriculture where you could have two farms and one farm's much more productive than the other and one could be they got better land yeah. The other could be, well, the farmer is just a better farmer. Yeah. He plants. Knows when to put the fertilizer down and knows what to do at the right time and things like and that. And which crops to rotate yeah. and how much fertilizer to put down and yeah. all the rest of it. My sense from the stuff I've done is it's more that that latter thing than the, the former. So now what happens if one of these more, I know you're interested in ownership and changes in ownership. What happens if one of these guys who you see is a very productive producer of concrete acquires another firm that's, you know, not so good. That doesn't get as much per man hour or per total input. Yeah, you so see your productivity go up? You do. You do. Um, one interesting thing, I guess this isn't... Completely? Does it... Does it no. Does so it, actually, <laughs> there, there's some work that other people have done more broadly outside this industry, but same sort of idea. you got to manufacture who's up here operating at this level Let's and they buy call him 10 and the other guy's six. Yeah, 10 and six. So a 10 buys a six. And so what you tend to see on average is the six goes up to an eight and the 10 actually can go down to a nine, at least temporarily. So that, so it seems that to be some reallocating. I think some, they're reallocating whether it's managerial attention or other sort of intangible inputs. These, these factors are getting reallocated from the more efficient acquirer to the less efficient uh, acquired plant. I mean, it's sort of what we saw also in the cotton spinning stuff that I've been doing recently, another exciting industry. Um, but we, you know, we looked at acquisitions there and you could see that there wasn't actually technical efficiency. It was partly technical efficiency, but it was also how they manage demand. And you could see that being transferred from the, the firm that's acquiring the, the less profitable firm and then, and then they're you know, applying their talents to the, to the acquired firm. So, I mean, and, and this is an interesting issue because in, in economics, often when we talk about productivity, it's kind of a black box concept, is, which basically means I look at how much input you use, I look at how much output you produce, and you're more productive if you get more outputs from the same inputs. It's That's, a residual. It's just exactly. Yeah, it's like, you know, you output per man hour. You get more than me. What you're saying is, you in some cases, you can actually link it as to what we're doing different. Yeah. That is, we are doing this better or that better. We're making better 
production decisions. We're making better input choices. Yep. We're and, then, and so you're 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 doing some of that kind of work as well. Yeah, exactly. So what are the mechanisms that are creating the differences in productivity? Exactly. Can we open up the black box and say, you know, where this residual comes from? And so, um, you know, part of the again the the cotton spinning stuff. We had data that you just don't usually get, and that helped us see in a lot more detail the particular mechanisms that were actually creating these these differences across the company. Yeah, so for example, I can give you an analogy to tell me if this kind of fits with what you're seeing is a friend and colleague of mine, Finus Welch, who looked at farmers, and he looked at more educated farmers compared to less educated farmers. And if you just look at the data from the black box standpoint, you see the educated farmers get more output per acre than the less educated farmers. And you might say, well, why? Do they drive the tractor faster? Do they pick corn faster? Do they do anything faster? And his basic conclusion was, no, if they both chose to do the same things, you'd get about the same output. It's just the more educated farmer tended to make better choices. He tended to put the, a smarter mix of fertilizer. He tended to plant at a better time. But if by chance or whatever, the less educated guy made the same choices, he got the same output. You know, it's not like why does a LeBron James score more points than somebody else. Part of it is maybe he makes better choices, but a lot of it is he's just a hell of a lot better at playing basketball than the guy who's sitting at the end of the bench. Right. And they could take the same shots and LeBron James is just going to make a lot more of them. Right. You know. And I, that's a, completely agree with all that. And, and I think the question of how much, so just put all that LeBron James stuff in, in, in terms of management of companies. We know management matters, and there's plenty of evidence on that now. So management differences create, are correlated and looks like create productivity differences. What we don't know yet is how much of that is the practices themselves. In other words, you could swap out one manager for another. As long as they're doing the same things, you're going to get those productivity benefits versus a combination of the practices and the manager. So we don't know whether how much it's the LeBron factor itself or just that whatever LeBron does that anyone could do is, is where the secret is. And I, that I, people are still working on. And my sense is, my guess is both matter, but we really don't have a good sense of whether it's, you know, half and half or 80-20 and whether it's 80-20 in what direction. Yeah, so that's interesting. So when we study... So one aspect of productivity is this question we've been talking about, which is what explains productivity differences across firms? I know a bunch of your other work is how does that evolve over time as the less productive firms, if the economy's working well, should be getting pushed out of the industry and the more productive firms expanding now, does that happen? Do you see that when you look at the marketplace as a tendency for survival to be related to your level of yeah, productivity? Yeah, that, that actually is one of the most ubiquitous patterns that I and other people have found. It's like almost any industry you look at, uh, 
productive firms are less likely to go out of business. As industry, time period, country, it doesn't matter. People have found that. Is that the, equally true in all countries? No. Or are so countries? the answer is no. That, that's a directional statement. The size of the effect does vary, and it can vary in systematic ways in, the, in ways you might think. So in places where you know, m markets are more flexible, you're more likely to see this. And, and actually, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is flexibility is sort of, uh, it's two-dimensional. You have, you have output market flexibility and you have input market flexibility. We're just going to ask that. Okay, good. Well, so output market is how easy is it for customers to switch to another supplier if they'd like to, okay? And that's things like, you know, it could be transport costs, switching costs of any sort, all those sorts of things go into output market substitutability, trade barriers also. Okay? Input market flexibility is about how well can inputs, workers, capital, be moved from one firm to another. And those two things are, are complements. You know, you can have a lot of output market flexibility. And so, you know, first of all, why does flexibility matter? Because you want the market to reward performance, all right? So when a firm figures out a better way to do something, you want it to grow, right? And to replace the less efficient uh, firms, okay? Well, for that growth to happen, you need flexibility on both sides of the market. You need customers to be able to switch to the firm that's better, but then you also need to be able for that firm that is better, and now the customer, they, there's more people wanting to buy from them, to be able to grow, right? So they need to be able to hire the workers and get the capital that they need to meet that new demand. And so you can have a lot of flexibility on the consumer side, but if you don't have flexibility on the input side, you're not going to get the reallocation that you'd like to see, and vice versa. You can have input flexibility, but not output market flexibility, and you're going to be in the same situation. Yeah, because I mean, in some circumstances, those are substitutes for one another, like in some trade examples, like... You know, yeah. if you can move that's the goods, true. you oh, don't always need to move the people. Yeah, that's if you can point. move the people, you don't really need to be able to move the yeah, goods. Yeah, that's a good. Well, that's sort of like defining the market. That's how you define the market, right? If you if you think of the labor market as sort of being the world labor market, then moving stuff from one country to another, in some sense, is giving you input market flexibility. You might not be moving these workers here to that firm. Correct. in the other country, but you are moving the workers who are applying themselves to producing this. But if you think about what you can trade, what you can actually move, that example works because when you move the workers, the output automatically moves. Yeah, that's right. But if you can't move the workers, maybe you can just move the output. That's right. And, you that's know, and it, depends on, well, it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. So for some problems, you need to have both. And sometimes you, you, you could get away with one or not the other. That's true. And I, but that's got to be an important lesson for a country because it, it would tell them, you know, where do, what do I have to worry about? You know, and, and for example, is free trade a substitute for freer internal markets? Or does free trade not do you as much good if you don't have good internal markets? Right. All those kinds of questions. Yes. Now, if I'm thinking about productivity at the aggregate level, which is also something I know you've been thinking about and working on. Um, so one of the things you're saying that determines the way that which productivity can go up 
is the rate at which we can move resources from less productive places to more productive places. Exactly. By moving both inputs and outputs, typically. What else determines the level of productivity growth at the aggregate level? Yeah, so the, there's there's two, fact, two general factors. One is this sort of reallocation. And the other is what incentives does any given firm have to raise its own productivity level? Okay? And there, you, those are also substitutes. You can get aggregate productivity growth just through reallocation, or you can get it through everybody making themselves better. Um, but what about, you, what about a third channel? I okay. mean, you didn't mention one, which is the rate at which innovations by one firm Defeat spread is. to oh, yes. innovations by yeah, other there's firm. Some, there's some really nice work on this lately that's suggesting that process has slowed down. Um, that's a good point too. So yeah, so there's, there's really three, you're right. And the one, it, so the frontier is moving and that's, it, that is a product of incentives also. Okay. So that's policy, uh, driven a lot of times how fast the frontier is moving and then conditional on that, how well the sort of laggard companies catch up to the frontier. That's the, uh, yeah. And then, even without any individual firm growth, you have the reallocation thing going on as the third process. All those add up to, can add up to aggregate productivity. Yeah, I would think, you know, and, and they're related too, because the extent to which employees move across firms is going to be one of the things that determines how fast ideas diffuse right. across firms. Yeah, you know, Steve Klepper uh, did some great work on kind of like the movement of people being the conduit for the spread of ideas through industries. And that's really nice case studies. Yeah, and at the industry level, but also on the international level. Oh, yeah. Migration and right. immigration are major mechanisms. Definitely. And even trade, even if you don't move people, just trading with you and working with you and dealing with you, I can see how you do things and Yeah, and to learn. some extent the trade and capital goods too. Right, you get the new if cap, you know technology has a capital embodied component. If you're not making that stuff, you got to get it from somewhere, and so it's the trade and the capital goods markets that can spread the frontier technology around too. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is often when we make cases for different policies, or be they free market policies or non-free market policies or interventions of various types. We focus on kind of static elements of that. How is that going to improve things right now? Are we gonna are we gonna solve a bottleneck? Are we gonna you know improve the allocation of resources? But once you start thinking about productivity growth, you want to think about well, geez, how is that going to affect this growth? The process by which productivity increases mm -hmm. and any lessons that you've learned in your research there about how policies or or other government interactions with the marketplace affect the ability of productivity to grow? You can draw on your own research, other research you find interesting or important. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some good work on, you know, we were talking about input market flexibility. People, I, I've seen some fairly convincing stuff that if you gum up it's often in the context of labor markets because they tend to be, you know, there's a lot of variation actually in the flexibility of labor markets across, across economies, for example. 
kind of petri dishes again yeah here exactly. on, on a different level yes exactly it's a country countrywide petri dishes now and i i find pretty convincing that you just see the allocation process work less well when input market when labor markets are less flexible and this comes from comparing across countries but also as you know people have looked at changes within countries and policies so a country will do something to make its labor market less flexible or or more flexible as the case may be and then you look and see well how does reallocation work on either side of that change and the evidence is pretty again pretty uh, solid that that reallocation works better when you let those markets work better and i think you know some people sort of shorthand flexible labor markets as being the absence of of sort of protection for workers I, you know i don't know what you want to call it or whatever but a, a lack of a social safety net but i don't think that's that's true i think a lot of these barriers are sort of after the misguided notion of you got to protect the job rather than the worker you know like we no matter what we can't break up this this job because that would be terrible uh but you know if that job's not productive anymore we don't want it to stick around we want to sit and and support it ad infinitum um now that doesn't mean we can't help this worker once the job is gone find another job that they're well matched to but that that's about you know the policy is geared toward helping the worker not preserving that job at all costs so you're saying having more job durability one of the lessons you've learned is that having more job durability isn't necessarily a great thing I mean, that's right. we had a world that said you could never eliminate in a position that was just forbidden that you would go to jail if you've ever fired somebody or anybody left it's a bad, idea. <laughs> bad idea it's a bad idea there's no doubt about it and one of the and I don't know how related this is to policy. I don't, the evidence, there's no evidence in on it really. But one thing that makes one pause a little bit is we know that process of worker job allocation has been slowing down in the U.S. and some other economies lately. And sort of that that process is again is part of this reallocation that's supposed to be moving activity from less productive to more productive companies. And that that thing has just kind of been on a secular downward trend for reasons we're not quite sure about and yeah so, I, I talked to steve davis and yeah, he so talked about gonna... he talked about that 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 you know in some sense the economy had become less dynamic that we just aren't seeing the same reallocation of resources and you know and, and that's a neat question because i think most people think of the reallocation as resources is a bad thing people are losing a job they're having to go find a new one but once you start thinking about productivity, you realize that that's part of the story. Exactly. Part of you the need that to happen. I mean, it's, you need that to happen. We, we're not in a static world. Taste change, cost change, technology changes. All of those changes require, if we want, you know, to have, to grow the economy, to be better, to be happier, we need those reallocations to respond to those those shifts and when that process slows down you start getting nervous yeah 
So if it's if it becomes harder for people to move, or just for some reason they're not moving as often, that can be a drag on productivity growth. Yep. And now, is productivity growth important? Is it you know? Is it, I, I realize I'm throwing how, up. How important do you want it? You know, if if I thought about it, right? I mean, if it's like the only thing in in the long long run that matters. In if some it stops, sense. kind of things stop. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the, you know, the solo model, which is like in the long run, the only thing that creates increases in in output per worker is technology growth. You well, can only get so much out of capital accumulation. Well, you're going a little too far there, right? Because it may be that technology is the ultimate driver, but it still takes capital accumulation and human capital accumulation on top of that. That is, if you just had improvements in productivity, but you never increased your capital and you never increased your human yeah. capital, you wouldn't get as much as you do. Fair enough. But those other processes are dependent on the productivity growth, I think is what you're yes. saying. Yes, It's maybe the, it's the engine that's running a system. It's the prime mover in some sense. Yeah, and but it, the, the mechanism but, uh, through which it works includes accumulating human and yeah. physical capital. Yeah. So it's not like, I mean, because if you just say it's all productivity growth, then it's like all, all everything we do should be focused on just how do we get more productivity growth without worrying about, well, how do we foster the accumulation of cap, human capital? How do we foster the accumulation of physical capital? And finally, the process you talked about, which almost never gets talked about, which is the reallocation process. How do we, yeah, yeah. How do we get that maximize the benefits of productivity growth? We can oh, have all right. the same discoveries, right. but if nobody's oh, using them, you're right. If one if one company at the edge of the world is the only thing that's operating at the frontier, that's not really good for anybody either. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. And now, when we talk about macroeconomics and productivity growth. As soon as you say the word macro, I think for a lot of people who had some introduction to economics, they immediately think business cycles and you know recessions and booms and those things. When you say you're involved in macro, my impression is you're less, you're not uninterested in business cycles, but that's not been the focus of what you're looking at. You're looking at a different side of macro that let's talk about, which you might think of as growth. Yep. And the process by which countries improve their standard of living over time. That's right. And a plot that I love to throw up in a lot of talks that I give, and I know a lot of people do, is a long-term chart of, product, of output per worker or, or GDP per worker in a country like the U.S., which shows, you know, over the last 120 years, enormous growth when viewed at that time scale at a relatively constant rate. Yeah. That is, we've grown, you know, 2% a year, whatever number you want to choose, depending on how you measure it, over a pretty long period of time. And that suggests that, geez, you know, we just march along. We just march up this curve and 100 years from now, we'll just be that much further along. Now, maybe that's too simple, I think, and that's what I want to talk to you about. Is that, is that true, that productivity growth is really just this 2% a year from now forever? Uh, to be honest, I don't think anyone's ever made a convincing case that that's some sort of natural number. Like, 
Well, I, I, well, that's not quite right. I guess the endogenous growth stuff gives stories about that. I wouldn't say they've made them. Like they haven't made an empirical case. case. Yeah, exactly. Or even a great, great theoretical case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As people have tried to explain it. But yeah, no, it's not like we sort of do think of this as a birthright or something, but there's no, it isn't a kind of natural thing just, that just falls out of any Econ 101 model that you should expect to grow at 2% per year. Okay, now the one deviation from that that I think almost everybody's familiar with is the business cycle element of that, that there are booms and there are recessions, and so even if we were growing at a 2% or whatever number you want to pick out of a hat level, that there are going to be periods where output grows much faster than that, call it a boom period, in cases where it grows much slower, maybe even contracts, call that a recession, where output is per worker or output is going down over some period of time. Let's say you're not interested in that. You say, ah, that all averages out, and that's, you know, that's very short-run phenomenon. Right. If you look at the economy at a slightly longer frequency, don't look at the whole 120 years, look at decades. Uh, is it a smooth process that we always grow at the same rate, the 70s and 80s and 90s, the 50s and 20s, the teens? No, you, you see, so like, you see kind of waves that operate at the, I'd say the decadal level, maybe something like that. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about this before with the kind of the longer run productivity p growth periods in the U.S. There's post-war, for example, so 47 or so to 73, pretty fast productivity, labor productivity growth, output per worker. So you're talking on the order of two and a half maybe even a little bit fat, two and a half to 3% per year. Okay, so it's 20 some years of that. And then 74, it just slows down and it's it slows down for 20 years. 74 to 95 basically almost cut in half. So one and a half percent per year growth in output per worker. Then it speeds up again for another decade, 95, 2004, and it slowed down again. And we've, we're still in that, that slowdown period. So the speed up was up to about two and a half, and then now we're back down to one and a half again. And so you get the, even aside from the business cycle stuff, you get these sort of slower waves in growth. And so, yeah, when you, when you take a step back, it looks like one long line, but when you start to, to zoom in, you can see even beyond just the year or two business cycle stuff, you see kind of slower waves in there too. And that's, you know, what we've been seeing, and we're dealing with one now, I okay, guess. Okay, so let's, I want to talk about the current situation, but let's talk a little bit about history. Um, so that's the black box way of looking at the world, right? That there are these waves that I can see by looking at the ultimate output, the ultimate growth level of the economy. Is there a more micro or, or more more internal analysis that you can do? Like, are these waves associated with something we can identify? Like, we could identify management practices or other things at the firm level or things at the aggregate level. Like, can we say, well, we had a big wave associated with X. Like, what, what were the big events? Take that period, 1890, 2010. You know, look at the world in 2010, it's really different than the world in 1890. I mean, 
it would, it, anybody who saw those two worlds would say they don't look anything alike in terms of the way people do things. And are there important periods there that you could say were associated with those rapid growth? Were there technologies in particular that were important? I think the way most people characterize it, and I think this is a fair way to do it, although I, it also sort of sweeps some details under the table. Um, that over that period, there was basically the spread of two general purpose technologies. So the early period was the, the electric, let's call it portable power, the electric motor and the internal combustion engine. Um, and I think the data is not as good back then, but I think there's enough evidence that suggests the productivity growth and even the waves within that productivity growth, although I think we have less a good, less a solid idea on the details of this, were driven a lot by the diffusion of those that portable power technology. And then the second, but let's stop for a moment. Okay, back to the way we were talking about before. So, the development of portable power seems to be important. We replaced a lot of human power and animal power with mechanized power, whether it be from electricity or internal combustion engines. That required, in keeping with what we talked about before, some major investments in yeah. capital and major investments in people. Yeah. You know, the number of people that needed to use a shovel on a daily basis was greatly diminished yep. when that happened. The number of people doing all kinds of physical energy-related activities was really diminished as we developed the ability to use electric power and, and gasoline power and diesel power to change those things. So that's part of the story too. So it's technology, but also investment. And we, we had to change that's a true. lot of things we do. That's fair. All these, there's a bunch of complementary investments in those other factors that need to go on to sort of harness the pure technology component or whatever you want to call it. That's right. But like you said, if we hadn't had the technology, maybe those investments wouldn't have been so useful. We, you know, so that's why the technology you might yeah. say is the ultimate. Building a bunch of poles with power lines on them, not very useful unless you got a big generator at the end of it. Putting or gas stations without the internal combustion engine wouldn't really exactly. do a whole lot. Nor the roads that the cars ride on. Exactly. Um, okay, so then we had the electrification. Any other ones that... And then the second sort of set of waves would, you know, basically information communication technologies, the ICT stuff. So that's, say, starts 65 to 70 around there. And that's kind of been driving the, the productivity waves since, since that time. Okay, now you talk about the slowdown that's occurred in the last decade. Let's talk about that. Roughly from 2004 to today, productivity didn't, hasn't grown as fast as it did in from 95 to 2004, which was a faster than normal period yep. by historical standards. But even as fast as it has on average over the previous hundred years. So we've been, in, we're in a slow growth period. Now, let me challenge that a little bit and just talk about it a little bit. You know, one of the things about productivity growth is how do you measure it? 
You know, what is it? What do you mean by more output? If if we were just making more tons of cement, that was concrete was the only thing we produced. Output would be pretty easy to measure. We would just take concrete, we weigh it, and we'd say, yeah, how many tons did we produce this year? How many tons did we produce last year? How much more productive are we than we used to be? But in practice, that's not necessarily the way the world works, right? A lot of the things we produce are new goods, they're different goods, they're differentiated products. The things that made concrete such a great thing to study as a case study <laughs> tells us that there are a lot of things that aren't so easy to study yeah, as well. That's right. And how do you bring that in? You know, it's like, what makes me think, you know, when I look at the world, I see people in 2015 doing, behaving very differently than they did in 2005 in terms of how they allocate their time, the kind of goods they consume. Maybe, I, maybe I'm missing it, but they seem to spend a lot more time on social media. They yeah. do a lot of other things. Yeah. How do we know how much value all those things have added? Yeah, that's a great question. And let me break down the answer into a few yeah. pieces. I think the first thing, well, what, well, first thing is, you know, just the way we measure productivity, it's, in the end, it's GDP per worker. Okay, so first of all, GDP is not total surplus, right? So one problem is, well, so what do I mean by that? You know, people get a benefit. GDP measures the value of everything at the price it's sold. Yep. But that doesn't mean the benefit that people get from that is limited to just the price they paid for it. Now, I, I might value uh, my new uh, smartphone at $1,500, but if I bought it for $600, and that's $900 of surplus I get that doesn't show up in GDP, all right? And so that measurement issue is going on, and a lot of people said to, to the slowdown in particular, they said, well, maybe what's going on since 2004 is a lot of the, the benefits of these new products, they're not showing up in the price. It doesn't mean the, pro the benefit of the products aren't growing you know, at the old 2% per year like before, it's just the prices aren't kind of keeping up with them, and that's why... It looks like productivity slowing down, but that's sort of more of an artifact of how we measure it. So, I mean, one way to think about it, and this is maybe too technical for the broader audience, but I mean, one way to think about that is we measure how much you spend. And that, that we do measure pretty well. Because why? Because people care about their bank accounts. That's right. And therefore, accountants tend to measure total dollars. How do you divide that up between price in quote the quantity and where we're because an economist we would include quality and all these other dimensions and quality and, and and when we're producing just more of the same stuff measuring productivity growth is not and it's never easy but relatively straightforward because right. it's just you know it's just more of the same stuff and it's easy to say well I got more than I had yesterday mm -hmm. and uh, how do you deal with a case where you're producing different stuff you know, more different stuff. I mean, like, like social media. I mean, you know, people are spending a lot of time consuming that stuff. Yeah, the, the time thing is, is hard because, like you say, like, I guess we would call it reveal preference. If someone's spending hours and hours a day on this thing, it doesn't matter what they're paying for it. They must, 
they must like it. They must be getting something out of it, right? Yeah. But the problem is if they're not paying for it, then it doesn't show up in, in output or productivity. Okay? So, I mean, the, what I would say to that is, well, look, all these time-related things, they might have aspects of them that are free. I don't have to go pay. I don't have to go put a dime in the machine every time I, I log into Facebook or Google or whatever, right? But I got to pay for access to the internet. Yeah. So if I'm going to use that, I am paying. I'm paying for access to it. It's just not for it directly, but I'm paying for the conduit to it. But we call that inflation, don't we? When we, when we, see, when we see people are paying more in their cable bill, I mean, are we really, is that in the GMP and product accounts being counted as more output or is that mostly being counted as higher prices for cable yeah. TV? Uh, I mean, let's study cable. That's a great example. Okay. I see people have cable TV. Do we know, like, what's measured productivity increase in the entertainment industry? Is it high, low? It's, it's not very high. It's modestly high. What is true is if you think the productivity slowdown is coming from this sort of stuff we're talking about, then the implied productivity growth of the entertainment sector is really immense, like almost like make your eyes pop out immense. And the reason for that is because the slowdown has been long enough and big enough that for this sector of the economy that people say, well, look at all these things that we're having now in 2015 that we didn't have in 2004. If you're going to say that this slowdown is because of those things, well, all those things in 2004, when presumably we were measuring things better, and this, that's why we hadn't seen a slowdown yet, it was like 8% of the economy. But we're missing twice as much of the economy now because of the slowdown. So somehow you got to think that that, that modest chunk of the economy somehow accounted for way more. It was punching way above its weight or would be, if we were measuring if it we're measuring correctly, correctly now, would be punching way above its weight. And I, th I just sort of think, not that I dismiss the, the notion qualitatively, but I just don't see how you can get to where you got to go to explain away the productivity slowdown by saying, well, this this relatively small segment of the economy somehow created all this value that we're missing. But, but is that, is it right to think about it as a relatively small segment? Because I'm just using uh, entertainment as an element. Yeah, I mean, let's well, say we start, uh, right now we'll talk healthcare. Maybe we'll talk. Okay. Well, I tried to go that, through systematically. I said, like, anything that's, that's kind of directly related to, to ICT, so it would be all electronics, manufacturing, service industries that service those kind of, that kind of machinery, that kind of capital, those technologies, and the entire information producing sector. So that's, that's media, yep. plus internet service providers and all that other stuff. And that, again, that's the thing that adds up to this, what I still think is kind of modest. And, to be, and, you know, and on the other hand, some of that stuff is like newspapers. It too, it's not. It's not like yeah. every chunk of that eight percent we think has been having these amazing gains. Some of it's been shrinking, but I'm sort of giving. I'm not trying to carve that out. So yeah, maybe I'm missing some things. Like you're right. If 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 ICTs really change the way healthcare is done, I'm not counting that because it's not not a directly an ICT related sector. So I'm missing that. But on the other hand, I'm 
also putting things in that probably shouldn't be there. I don't know. So let's 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 so let's divide the economy up into pieces. Okay. We got manufacturing. Mm -hmm. What's happened to productivity growth in manufacturing? Is it slowed? It slowed just like overall. It's for decades. Uh, manufacturing productivity has been faster, grown faster than average productivity, uh, and in durables in particular. That's still true, but relative to its old level, it's slower than it was. So we and we think we measure that probably better, better. than yeah. Do we think we measure it worse than we used to? You think this is? You think measurement yeah, is part of the question. story here? I, I wouldn't. You, 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 I think you're telling. I'm hearing from you. Measurements there may be a concern, but it's certainly not going to explain this away. That's sort of how I think about it. So, I don't dismiss the notion that, I certainly don't believe we have no measurement problems, and I don't dismiss the notion that measurement might be part of the slowdown. But I just, and I've looked at it in several different ways, and I don't see, every way I've looked at it sort of suggests, mm, measurement doesn't, can't be that important. I haven't found the piece of evidence that that goes the countervailing direction, which is, oh, measurement might be there. I mean, the stories are there, but quantitatively, it just doesn't line up. And, and another thing to remember is, yeah, we don't measure things well now, but we, we, we never really measured things well before. Even manufa manufacturing, where we might think we measure things the best, at its height was maybe 25, 26% of GDP. And sort of the... The, and maybe you think you can measure mining and, and a few other sectors well, but those, those sectors even at, weren't that big. So we've always had measurement problems. We've always had this issue of the well-being that a good, a new good uh, delivers is not always aligned with its price. But in, th it's not like that started in 2004. That's sort of my point. Like it's, it's more than you just got to tell the story that you're mismeasuring these things. You got to somehow tell a story that the mismeasurement got systematically worse starting in 2004. And we might think that has happened, but probably not enough yeah. to explain the slowdown. So that, yeah. that's sort of like question one, right? Okay. Like it, when we analyze phenomena like this, the first thing we want to convince ourselves of is we've really characterized correctly what has happened. It's kind of like when inequality went up, one of the things we wanted to say, is this just about some quirky measurement thing or has there really been an increase in inequality? And I think most people have now concluded growth in inequality is real. Yep. Now you've saying one reasonable conclusion is that the slowdown in productivity over the last, call it decade, is real. Yes. Now one of the things you've also pointed out for us is that's not a unique occurrence. That is, this is not the first time in history, it's not a hockey stick graph where we were going up at a constant rate and now we're going up at a slower rate and oh my God, this has never happened before. That's right. So we have something that's real, mm -hmm. something that has precedent and that it's happened before. Yes. It's okay. almost uncanny in how it's happened before, actually. Yeah, it's like numerous times we've had these kind of slowdowns. Yes. And then just when everybody thinks the world has come to an end, it, it somehow doesn't. That's right. Okay, so okay, so let's we know we've made progress. And there's a lot of ways economists have made progress in general. You want to make sure it's real, it's really there, you're saying it is. Now, there are differing views out there now as to whether this is 
gonna last yeah. versus oh no this is business as usual viewed more grandly and you know the fact that we've been slow for a decade doesn't mean we won't be quick for the next decade right where do you come out on that and why i am and you don't have to have the final answer but yeah. you know well i'll probably change my mind when the data change too but i'm a, i'm a macro optimist with but i'm a micro agnostic on it here's what i mean by that the, the macro optimist in me says, just like you were saying, we've gone through these waves before. Um, and in fact, if, if you, you, know, you compare what's happened in the ICT era, let's say six, 1970 on, and you compare that to what happened in the electric, portable power era that we were talking about before, you see the same patterns. And it's almost, almost to the number the same pattern. So, so if you think 1970 is the analog to 1890, okay, so the beginning of those periods, what you saw in both cases was a 25-year period of really modest, if not all right, slow productivity growth. And you know, I'm not enough of a historian to be able to tell you what folks were saying in 1915, but it's certainly true people in 1995 we're publishing the 400th dissertation on why productivity had slowed down. And they, why, why isn't productivity going faster? We have these computers and these are amazing new machines, yet you don't see it show up in the productivity statistics. Right? And the same thing was going on with electrification. And then, 1915, 1995, uh, there's an acceleration. I so not, in, not the period between those, just yeah, to make clear sorry. what you're saying. In 1915, there was an acceleration in a parallel acceleration that happened in 1995. Exactly. Both call it 25 years into their, a, their respective periods being driven by these general purpose So, So the idea is back in 1890, we start this portable power era, 25 years of adopting portable power, identified that's what we were doing, yep. not getting as much out of it as you might have hoped. So around 1915, though, things really pick up. Yes. Fast forward to 1970, IT technology is coming in. Again, a period of slow growth. 25 years again. Yep. 1995, boom, we start booming just like we did in 1915. Exactly. And then you had an acceleration for a decade, 95 to 2004. You had an acceleration back then for a decade. 1915 to 1924, plus or minus. Then it slows in both periods. So you got the wave. It's sort of like people are installing these technologies, but they sort of haven't figured out the real secret, yeah. kind of. And then that, and it's like, boom, oh, oh, okay. We see how the pieces fit together, literally and figuratively. And then you get this wave. But then it sort of has worked its way through, and then you have the slowdown again. So this is the... This is the mid-20s in, in portable power, and it's 2004-05 in ICT, okay? And now, it's important to realize that the slowdown in productivity predated the financial crisis. Yes. And, you know, because a lot of yeah. people think everything starts and stops with the financial crisis. Yeah. You're saying identifiably in the data just like people think the world changed dramatically in 1929, which it did, but the right. slowdown in productivity was earlier. Yes. 
That's right. Uh, John Fernald's got, I think, pretty convincing evidence on this. And you see this in other countries, too. It's, it's before, the, before the crisis started. The, the productivity slowdown was already here by the time, by the, time the crisis hit. Um, so, in the, so you're in this, this you've, you had the slow quarter century, the first wave, now you have the slow period again. And well, we're on the, we're, we're still in the slow period here today. Back then, the slow period ended, 33, 34, kind of right about the depths of the Great Dece- uh, uh, Depression, actually. And you had another spike in growth for a decade or so. This is the late 30s, early 40s. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot going on there, though. That's World right. War II so, and so I computed, uh, you bet. So I computed, you can compute those numbers leaving out all the World War II years and for reasons that make plenty of sense. And you still see there's a clear acceleration. Um, in fact, someone was just writing a book on like the Great Depression being the big, a huge area of technological progress. And I haven't look closely enough at it to see how they overlap, but it's consistent with this. Anyway, that's what that, it's that second wave that happened in portable power that makes me the macro optimist that, you know, just because we've had our one good decade with this ICT stuff doesn't mean we've wrung all the gains that are possibly there out of it. That didn't happen with portable power. I don't see necessarily why that couldn't happen with ICT. It hasn't happened yet, but it could. Okay. Why am I a a microagnostic because I haven't seen yet like clear systematic evidence of oh here here's the new wave of ICT taking hold maybe not in the macro data but in in these cases and I could imagine how these cases will spread out to more and more cases and in a couple of years we'll see it hit the hit the macro panel. What was it in portable power? What what was that? What would be the things that the microagnostic would have looked at to become oh, non-agnostic <laughs> in the portable power era? What happened in the late thirties? That's a great question. Um, that's a great question. I haven't thought about it. So, or would you, or would you have been just as agnostic at that point because you don't see the? Yeah, I don't know. I. I, I I suppose with the benefit of hindsight, I could go back and just start digging through and looking for the earliest signs yeah, of where they were. Yeah, of course it's cheating. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I, I'm not sure how much it helps answer that question, but I will tell you what I think a lot of people think the story is of the first wave of the electrification, and that is, and I think there's a little bit that speaks to this ICT stuff too there. And this is the Paul David's point, which is at first, take the electric motor, okay? So at first what people did is they used to have factories and they're run by a steam engine and there would be a vertical shaft running off of that thing. And you had a, the factory was a bunch of floors and you'd have a horizontal shaft coming off the prime mover shaft and all your machinery was run on belts off of those shafts, okay? And so that's the way you made factories, they were stacked. Okay, the electric motor comes comes out, and people say, "Well, this is better than a steam engine. Let's take out the steam engine and put an electric motor in." Okay, and so now you got your factory with the electric motor running all the shafts. But then some people say, or realize, "Wait a minute, electric motor. We can shrink these things down. We don't need one giant motor running the entire factory. 
we can put a little one of these things on every machine. Okay? And now we don't need to stack our factories anymore. They can just be laid flat, which makes it a lot easier to move things around and move along an assembly line. And it was, and that, that, that's a great example of you know, going to these complementary investments too. Like the first stage of this new technology was, we'll just use it to replace whatever it sort of was naturally built to replace. But the, the real gains from it came from recognizing not that it would just replace this thing that used to do and it, it did the it same thing. It wasn't just a better steam it, engine. Exactly, it wasn't just a better steam engine. It let you do a whole bunch of things differently. And it was reconfiguring all the other complements to it that gets you those gains. And so the question is, you know, looking forward, can I, can I tell myself those stories for ICT? Where's that second wave of, oh, the light bulb goes off and now we can see the yeah. new ways to, do, to well, do these things. Would one of the candidates for that be, let's call it the Uberization of, of production, that you know, we're not just going to use technology to you know, play a different a video game as opposed to a board game or something. We're actually now going to say, we're going to dramatically change the way we allocate rides yeah. and, or the way we do all kinds of activities that are huge parts of the economy. Yeah. You know, that, uh, you know, and, and... I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, is that kind of maybe an analog here that, you know, it's technology not so much as an end product, but, or even as an input, but it's just a totally different way to organize. Yes, exactly. Production. Yes. Yeah. And that, in some sense, that's the definition of a general purpose technology is it's, it's a reorganizer. It's an opportunity for a reorganization and the gains come, come from that reorganization. And so things like you get a lot more utilization of, of all sorts of capital stocks if you can coordinate it's, you know, the, the short-term demand for it to the short-term supply that Uber's a We don't need taxi cabs. People can use their car. Yes, and exactly. And we can use their time. The guy who's waiting to be an actor in California can say, well, I don't have to just sit in a coffee shop and drink coffee. I can drive my... I can drive for Uber, and when the call comes, I put down my sign. That's and right. then when I didn't get the job, I put the sign back up, and I'm yeah. now an Uber driver again. That's right. And further down the road, with with that or with autonomous vehicles, we don't need all these parking lots anymore. We can get rid of some of them and do other useful stuff with that space. I mean, yes, it's sort of those knock-on complementary effects. And then. not only that, not doing the things that didn't work. Yeah, exactly. You know, the things we thought we were going to do. Yes. I'm always amazed at the discussions you see or that, oh, this will revolutionize this or this will revolutionize that. And then later you realize, boy, that was didn't work out quite <laughs> the way people planned, you know? Yeah. I mean, because yeah. how many people would have thought that computerization would have had one of its biggest effects on the taxi industry? It, you know, yeah. if you had started listing yeah. industries exactly. that would be affected, right. you probably would not have guessed taxi cabs. That's right. You know, that we would have dramatically changed the way we do yeah, you know, you taxi rides. It's sort of like you couldn't have imagined any computerization being applied to something that you couldn't plug into a wall, right? Yeah. I mean, but, and so that... Let alone, like they're not driving the car or anything else. Yeah. They're just, they're just changing dramatically how... So, I mean, that's the kind of... 
interesting thing I think about technological progress is there's a reason we didn't think about it originally. It wasn't so obvious. Yeah. And but also doesn't this get to your other theme about diffusion and experimentation and different people learning because it isn't just a process of we just turn an innovation crank and innovation pops out the other end, right? We don't just sit there. That's not how innovation works. Definitely not. And that's your earlier studies kind of make that point that everybody's got his own ideas, he's got his own innovations, and some work out, some don't. Yeah, and you need you need them you need markets to work to sort of lift the good ideas above the the poor ideas. And you can't ex ante put them all on a table and say, well, that one's going to work and that one's not, and so let's do all that and none of that. You got to just it's got to work itself up for a while, and then you, when, when it becomes obvious, again, you want the markets to allocate resources in a way that, that, that diffuses those good ideas. So, I mean, one of the things economists are often asked to do, even if they're relatively ill-equipped to do it, is give advice on policy. And if you think the productivity, and we've established, I think, one, there has been a productivity slowdown. Number two, that the productivity slowdown is important because, you know, we're relative to a world where there had been no slowdown, there's a big gap. I yeah. mean, it's how many trillion dollars per year? It's is about it? $3 trillion a year now. That's a lot. It is a lot. How big is the economy? Uh, it's about $18 trillion. So, so it's, it's a, a sixth. About a sixth, a 16% or something mm -hmm. behind where we ought to be. That's a big shortfall. Yep. So it's happened, it's real, it's important. Okay, so we got the predicate there. So what should government do about it? What can we do or should we do something about it? Is there is there is there a policy prescription here? And you know. Yes. It's hard here's why I'm pausing. I can well, I mean some things like look, you want the Market's flexible for whatever, whenever any idea comes. Well, that's an important lesson because I don't think most people would say that would be the first thing that would come to their mind. So the, one of the first things that comes to your mind, based on your study, again, of history of microeconomic evidence, is that flexibility is important. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. And, you know, to some of... And that's gone down. Yeah. Well, the, so the at least of the evidence like, that it might have gone down. Like we were talking about with with Steve Davis's work, dynamism of all sorts is falling for reasons that are. I I feel it's still a little murky why it's happening. Um, maybe more to the point of this technological progress question and it, startup rates, you know, new business formations have slowed. Um, and not just recently, it's kind of been on a, like a three decade slide. Um, so even during the fast growth period, yeah, yeah. business formation was falling. Yeah. So I don't know if that was just covering up, maybe it's not related or maybe it was just covering up a deeper problem, but it's certainly something I think policy makers should pay attention to. I, you would, let me put it this way. You wouldn't, I don't think we want a world where that thing asymptotes to zero. So to the extent that that's affected by policy, I think we got to at least keep an eye on it. Do I have the magic policy we need to do 
This, no, I don't, but that is something that people should keep an eye on. So reduced dynamism, we're worried about that. So if we're doing things that are reducing dynamism, potential concern. Yes. Reduced business formation. If we're doing things that's making it harder to form businesses, maybe we should be worried about that. Yes. What else? Um, what I think... I still think there's a case, is the classic public goods case for more research. I, this quantitatively, I don't have a good sense on how big it is, but I would not be surprised if, if we're under spending on sort of pure research stuff. Um, and it's got huge, it, it's, it's very uncertain, but when things work, it's got huge effects. I sort of think it's, we spend so little on it anyway, it's sort of a cheap bet in some Even if sense. we're wrong, we didn't lose much. Exactly, exactly. And I, you, don't, you don't need to worry, I don't think you need to be too concerned about the sort of picking winners problem. It's like you, you let the, let, let science sort of sort out what's right and what's wrong, but give them, you know, the resources to, to innovate. Um, what else? Is there a role here for standard macroeconomic policy? Do we think we've, we just don't have sufficient demand? Do you, of course, your theory doesn't have much to do with that. Yeah, Yours no. is all about productivity. It is. I really don't feel I have much to say on these the demand side of, of that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure monetary monetary, monetary fiscal policy, policy is really related to that stuff. Yeah, or fiscal policy or fiscal policy. I mean, I sort of think, and this is something I've been meaning to do, and I haven't looked at it. I think infrastructure might be. Um, I think we might benefit from from more spending on infrastructure. If you just look at sort of long-run trends and the average age of public capital or things like that, we're sort of way below where we were in earlier periods when growth was faster. I think the bigger issue is maybe you could get all those gains if you took the money we were spending now and allocated it better. I don't know if that's how politically feasible that is, but I, I definitely think there are areas where it, you could invest in infrastructure and get some gains. But if we, if we were to introduce an infrastructure spending program, how do you think we would do it? Do you think we, where do you think we'd spend our money? Do you think we'd spend it wisely if we did? Define, define wise. So we'll, we're the way that we get the point, we're never going to get to the point where, you know, sort of the, the gains you'd expect from allocating dollars to any given project sort of should be about the same everywhere, you know, for that next yep. dollar. That's, that's what an economist would say you ought to do. Do you think they would be allocated to where the gains are the highest? Uh, <laughs> what your, your understanding of economics, based on what you've seen, have you, you have any experience looking at the data of what happens when we embark on one of these endeavors? Well, okay, so I think for system, for big things, 
You know, like the interstate highway system. Again, I mentioned John Fernald earlier. He's got a nice old paper on like the productivity gains that the interstate highway system created. Did we build every single interstate exactly where? No. No. But the, the thing was so big and so important as a network that you got those gains anyway, even though you kind of messed up here or that messed up. You know what I'm saying? You, you had to get the, this senator had to be paid off for their vote, and so yeah. they got the road when they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, it is harder when you say, well, we've got some incremental money. Let's figure out how to spend it. Well, now it goes to the chairman of the Transportation Committee's district. Well, that's probably... You're lucky if that's even correlated with, with the economic gains. So that's a long-winded answer of saying sort of when we make big pushes, if it's the right kind of big push, you sort of get the gains even if you're, you're messing up sort of the, the micro bits. Because you're not you, depending on so much putting it in the right place. Exactly. Sort of shotgun approach, you're going to hit you're something. Gonna, yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. As long as you're aiming at the right target, yeah, you know, something's going to hit, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's harder, and I understand. Yeah, the political economy of things are quite often done in a way that steers these resources in a direction where you wouldn't want to put it. Okay. So I, I'm not a, I'm not, I am a realist about the actual process through which these funds are allocated. Uh, I would just say, I bet I could sit down and and come up with a bunch of projects that I think would be bigger, offer bigger gains than their cost. I see. So then, the, so I guess reflecting then on your research broadly and, and kind of how it ties into recent events, I mean, this does move productivity more to the center of what's been going on. It makes it more important because I don't think most people hear about productivity. They hear about the Great Recession. They hear about the financial crisis. Yeah. They hear about all those aspects of things. I don't think very many people say we're 18% behind because right. productivity's been slow. Right. I mean, people say we're behind because we had too much unemployment, because the construction industry collapsed. I mean, for most people, this is like a complete revelation. I mean, I, I think you've kind of understated what's going on here, right? Because it's saying, look, productivity is a big part of the story. It's always been important. It's one of the major drivers of the economy. And what's happened in the last decade is important and real. Yeah. I think, I think one, completely agree with all that. I think one of the reasons why it doesn't get the same attention is because it's sort of a drip, drip thing, naturally. You know, a slowdown in productivity growth a big slowdown in the data is to go from 2.8% year, a year to 1.5% a year. Well, no one's going to notice that in a year. Other than over a decade, it's yeah, 15%. Exactly. The <laughs> thing is, if that goes on for 10 years, now it starts to matter. And guess what? It's been going on for 10 years, and it really matters. It's a sixth of the economy that's missing. Um, and so, it's whereas, you know, a financial crisis, that happened in in months or yeah. weeks and you can't help but notice that stuff productivity trends tend to be just slower but man they matter when they when they're because they're persistent I and mean, that's just a fact in the data these things you get these decade long or more slowdowns and so 
I understand why people kind of miss them as they happen, but when you've sort of walked the path and then look back and say, whoa, that is a long ways. Um, but, but past experience, on the other hand, is also said that this has happened before. And somehow, when you look at that broad sweep of 120 years, we see it's evened itself out. We, you know, we got this long line and we're going around it, but yeah. there's nothing to say that these slowdowns are permanent or that you won't even make up for it with faster growth in the future. No, that's really. right. Just like, again, at the end of the electrification era, we had that second wave that made up for the slow decade. And let alone the next wave. Yeah. And who knows right. what the next wave is going to be. That's right. So a little bit pessimistic, largely optimistic, like, but still like we don't know I'm enough. A, I, I, we've recovered before, <laughs> but can I tell you the story? Do I see it starting? No, not quite yet. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, that's true. I mean, they, you know, People recover from illness until they die. Yeah. <laughs> and then they don't. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so it's kind of like, yeah. well, the patients have been sick before, they've recovered, but. Except for those ones who didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, it's an interesting story, but it's telling us we should be thinking a lot more about productivity. That productivity is, should be in more, more people's vocabulary. Unemployment, uh, financial crisis, interest rates, all those things make the news. But at the end of the day, productivity is a big part of the story. And I think your research has taught us that. And it seems like time well spent studying that over the last several decades. So well, thanks, Kevin. Appreciate I, it. No, this has been great. I really enjoyed talking with you. And Me too. hopefully people will walk away from this knowing a lot more about the drivers of the economy than they did coming in. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.